I'd like to take just a moment and echo the sentiment that was expressed earlier as, as the announcements were made right before the services began. What a blessing it is to be able to assemble and to gather even as we are on the, on the beauty of this Sunday afternoon. The sunshine, the humidity, all things so pleasant. And yet as God has made those things available and as He has in fact fashioned them for us, certainly we can direct to Him our heartfelt praise and thanksgiving for a day such as this and all the good things that we enjoy every day. As you already know by now, we come to a third installment in a series of lessons touching the Jordan River. And so tonight as we look at that, I would first of all invite you to perhaps avail yourself of a songbook. We will at least at the right time in the lesson make at least a reference to some things that probably will be very helpful, very beneficial, and very compelling because I'm going to refer to some songs that we often sing, and yet tonight's lesson will critically relate to them, and I hope we'll be able to sing them in future days, maybe with a renewed vigor and a renewed appreciation as to what the message of those songs really is. The Jordan River. The opening slide in this series, or on this lesson tonight, I should say, is just a very quick summary of the two lessons that have gone before we at least appreciated the fact that the popularity, the well-known character of the Jordan River is not due to the volume of water it carries. It's not due to the length of its journey. It's not due to large cities resting on its shores or its banks. Rather, the popularity, the knowledge of the Jordan River centers on its placement in the grand book of all books, the Bible. What scenes took place on its shores, not major cities, but events like when the children of Israel crossed the overflowing Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3. Or that scene wherein Elijah was taken from this earth in 2 Kings 2 on the banks of the Jordan River. Those of what has etched its appreciation in your mind and mine and have cemented for us a lifelong appreciation for the Jordan River. I might suggest the second lesson, the one we looked at last week, took those particular features and made use of them as we appreciated the work of John the Baptist in the vicinity and in the waters of the Jordan River and how that even Jesus was baptized at His hands in the Jordan River, Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. You'll notice on that slide some lessons that we've learned along the way but tonight, the lesson will be a bit different, but nonetheless, how meaningful. Nonetheless, how moving. And I hope that as we launch into it, we'll be ready to appreciate yet one more time that ancient and amazing Jordan River. This next slide will start that journey. And it does so by inviting you to make recourse to some songs. Likely, they'll be familiar but I do want to at least ask you to note the wording of them. We won't turn and sing them, but as I read them, I'm sure the words will be very familiar to you. First of all, song number 510. Probably in reference to the Jordan River, no song comes to mind more quickly than this one. On Jordan's stormy banks, and the words read like this. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. 
or all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. Their God, the sun, forever reigns and scatters night away. When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Savior's face and in His bosom rest? Filled with delight, my raptured soul would here no longer stay. Though Jordan's waves around me roll, fearless I'd launch away. We will rest in the fair and happy land by and by, just across on the evergreen shore. Sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by and by and dwell with Jesus forevermore. More than once in that song, reference to the Jordan River has taken place, but might we go ahead and observe the wording has instructed all of us to appreciate we're all looking to cross it. But I'll confess to you, I have never yet traveled to what's called the Holy Land. I've never traveled to that part of the world and literally seen the Jordan River's waters. But yet, you and I can sing this song if we never literally journey to that place because it's being used figuratively here, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. Look to Psalm 509, previous page. Same title on Jordan's stormy banks. Now you'll notice many of the words actually on the first four verses above are, are identical. So I won't read them again, but notice the chorus is different. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. In this instance, again, reference to the Jordan has taken our appreciation to a place and to a sense in which it has reference not to the promised land of Canaan, but to the promised land to which you and I are going. We'll develop that more thoroughly in just a minute. Third song. You can see it on the slide number 307. We have sung this one here some, but not as much as those other two. I trust, though, that the words will be somewhat familiar, but listen as I read them. The title, I Won't Have to Cross Jordan Alone, 307. When I come to the river at ending of day, when the last winds of sorrow have blown, there will be somebody waiting to show me the way. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Verse 2, oftentimes I'm forsaken and weary and sad when it seems that my friends have all gone. There is one thought that cheers me and makes my heart glad. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Verse 3, though the billows of sorrow and trouble may sweep, Christ the Savior will care for His own. Till the end of the journey my soul He will keep. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. And then the chorus reads like this, I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Jesus died for my sins to atone. When the darkness I see, He'll be waiting for me. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. That's a compelling song, isn't it? Sometimes I fear that you and I can easily sing these songs, and we've done it so often that they just almost roll off our tongue automatically. And maybe the sense, the power, the majesty, the meaning of some of the verses and words may slip by us a little bit too quickly. But I hope a lesson like this one will at least reflect upon the Jordan River and the placement that it should have for you and for me. 
as you and I close that slide, may I simply say, we then frequently sing about the Jordan River, but it's not a literal reference to the Jordan River. It well might be entitled a metaphor. If you remember your days of schooling or education or English classes, you might remember that a metaphor is a reference to an object or an idea or an activity in which it is not the literal activity itself, but rather something signified by it. Something that, in fact, is a figurative reference to that entity. May I suggest to you that's what we're facing tonight. The literal Jordan River is not the issue at hand in these songs. It's something the Jordan River stands for. It's something the Jordan River points to and has a meaning with respect to. And as we develop it tonight, you probably already know exactly what it is. But how meaningful, how moving... And it ought to be a very real part of your life and mine as a Christian. You'll notice then on that slide, could we go ahead and understand some of the wonderful things that we have not mentioned before, but that the Bible does in connection to the Jordan River? I began by inviting you to notice that God made promise to Abraham. And He did so in Genesis 13. And there He specifically told Abraham, Your seed will inhabit a land. Their number, that is the number of his seed, would be very large like the stars of the heavens, but that they will inhabit a land. God said, I'm going to give it to them. We know very well Abraham didn't live, of course, to enter that land. He died long before his descendants actually entered into it. But nonetheless, God had given a promise, and it was going to be a rather powerfully good land. God told Abraham that. Not only that, you might note this. The bounty, the beauty, the provision that connected to that land, you might go ahead and notice his seed, the seed of Abraham, were going to be in a land, and it was going to provide for them. Now, that was a literal land, and it was going to be fertile. It was going to bear much in terms of fruit and crops, and they would never want for anything as long as they would faithfully remain there. But let's journey onward. In Exodus 3, verse 8, as centuries had passed by, Abraham's seeds still weren't in that promised land. At that time, they were in Egypt. And they were serving hard taskmasters, and they found themselves in difficult circumstances, to be sure. But God, appearing to Abraham, I'm sorry, to Moses, told him, The time's come. I want you to lead this people out of Egypt to a land I'll show you. The promised land. It's now time. The fullness, if you please, of the time had come for their deliverance. And God was shortly to bring plagues. And in fact, His people were going to be delivered. But let's read on to the next one. Time and again, over the months and the years that followed, the children of Israel did journey toward this land of promise. And a number of times in the literature of the Word of God, it is specifically called a land flowing with milk and honey. You and I might take note of how meaningful that would have been to the children of Israel. They had been in Egypt. They had journeyed in the wilderness through 40 years following their release, and yet they were headed to a land flowing abundantly with milk and with honey. It was going to be a peaceful place, a place of abundance, 
a place of provision, a place where all their needs were satisfied. I think all of us could readily appreciate a desire for a place like that, a yearning for a place like that. Let's read on and note this. That thought, that hope, motivated the children of Israel through a number of years of wilderness wandering and a host of Bible verses, in fact, recollect and recount that. Everything from Psalm 105, verse 11, all the way to Ezekiel 20, verse 6. In all those prophetical writings, as well as in those books of poetry, we find references to a land of provision, and a land of abundance, and a land that God made ready for the people of Israel. But as you and I well know, to get to that land... They had to cross the Jordan River. To get to the place of prosperity and provision and peace, you had to first cross the Jordan River. There is no land of Canaan without a crossing of the Jordan River. To get to the first, you have to, in fact, make availability of the second. Let's close that slide then and note this. As the children of Israel thus came to the point of making ready that crossing... Doesn't it bring us to note this? Finally, they did arrive at the Jordan River and made ready to cross it. Their hopes were now about to become reality. The thing for which they had yearned for 40 years was now nearly going to come to pass. Quite frankly, there were other generations before that 40 who had longed for this. Oh, how prized it would be. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been as they walked through that dry Jordan River bed and set foot on the land of Canaan? Can you imagine how often, say, the father of these men must have told them about, Son, God is taking you to a land you'll never want for anything. Dad may have said, Son, I may not live to see it, but you will. And your sons and your sons after you, they will live to see it and they will live there. They'll know the presentness of that land. They'll know how much it offers. God's going to give you a place in that land. You'll be able to dwell there and raise your family. You'll be able to understand how supreme that place is. As you and I journey forward on the slide, might you and I never forget that God made a safe crossing of the Jordan of reality for the people of Israel. We've already learned back in Lesson 1, the crossing of the Jordan might have been difficult, challenging. In fact, it might have been near impossible at times because it had overflowed its banks. But God ensured that the crossing of the Jordan for the children of Israel was safe, was peaceful, was without problem. By now, I have spoken enough, at least reflecting upon the literal instance in the Old Testament of the Jordan River and the land of Canaan beyond, that now it's time for us on that slide to ask this question. What then are these songs and the messages that go with them? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. 
That was the first verse of that song that I read earlier. And you're hearing on Jordan's stormy banks. All of us, you see, are at least presented there as standing on Jordan's stormy banks, just like the children of Israel did. And just like they longed for and in fact enjoyed a peaceful and safe crossing, we do the same. Hoping for that, yearning for that, and living in such a way that that shall be the case. And so for the Christian, let's basically use the rest of our time tonight to settle in our heart the Jordan River and the imperative needed is for a safe crossing. I'll begin by inviting you to note this. Just as was the case for the children of Israel, God has made promise of a land of bliss, a land of provision, a land of pure and sweet bliss and delight for His faithful children. We're talking, of course, about Christians. There is a place, we call it heaven, do we not? A place where there shall be no wants. For as Revelation 21 describes it, there's no need for anything else, such as the sun, because all the light you'll ever need is made provision for by Jesus Himself. And there's no sorrow there. Revelation 21.4 There's no dying. There's no crying for sadness. All of that, you see, has long since passed. There's a place then, somewhat at least metaphorically like that land of Canaan, this land of sweet delight and provision, and all of us are journeying toward it, just like the children of Israel were journeying toward it. But you'll notice next on the slide, God's description of that land is so abundant. Remember in Revelation 22, the tree of life is there, and it bears fruit every month. Now remember, the tree of life is such that as you partake of it, you'll never die. Adam and Eve had access to that literal tree in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, but they messed up. They chose to sin. They chose to disobey, and therefore God restricted them such that there was no longer access to the tree of life, Genesis 3.22. But in this place we call heaven... Revelation 22 describes that that tree of life bears fruit year-round every month. And all that you and I shall need to do is partake of it, and we shall live forever in that place. No death, no dying, no separation from God. And all of our needs and all the matters of our heart and life are fully met and satisfied by the One who in supreme fashion is able to abundantly provide all that is needed. I've invited you to note at the bottom, how often does the Word of God then describe heaven as this grand hope of the Christian life? Should we not begin in Ephesians 4 verse 4? That's that famous listing of ones where Paul wrote and said, there's one body and one spirit even as you're called in one hope of your calling. What is the one hope of Christianity? Colossians 1 verse 5 says it's the hope of heaven. For in this life, if we have hope in Christ only, we are of all men most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. 
That means if we allow Christ to move and motivate us, but our hope is vested only in this life, Paul said we are of all people to be most pitied. We must have a hope that will go beyond the grave. A hope that in reality will far transcend beyond the matters of this flesh. And yet, the Jordan River points us to the appreciation of the beauty of this thing. One last thing about those verses, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, describe the reality of that hope and the reservation connected to it. But it's time to invest in Hebrews chapter 4, because here we have the zenith, the pinnacle, if you please, wherein this description reaches its absolute max, its maximum presentation. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 4. As you're turning to that place, could I at least remind all of us, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were suffering mightily and in many instances were tempted to revert back to the old Judaistic means of doing things. They had grown up as Jews, but they had obeyed the gospel, but they had found the going very tough. Persecution was keen in those days due to the Roman Empire, but they weren't persecuted while they were Jews. So they were tempted to go back to that style of religion, to go back to what they were familiar with from former days. And the book of Hebrews was a masterpiece written to urge them, don't go back. Because quite frankly, what you think you're going back to is not going to be there if you do try to go back. Because that law was nailed to the cross. That law has been done away with. And there's now a better covenant, Hebrews 8, verses 5 and 6. There's now a better law. Don't go back to that one. Now to chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Note the reference. He's not talking about the children of Israel here. They were journeying admittedly toward a place of rest, a place called Canaan, a place called the promised land. But now here He's talking to you and me and says, we too are looking for a place of rest. Verse number 2. For unto us, note the reference to all of us, was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. He draws a comparison to the children of Israel. They were given the message that they could join and enter into a land of rest, but sadly, tragically, many of them fell short of it. Do you remember due to their unbelief? They started, but remember when the message of the twelve spies came back and ten of them said, we can't take it. Oh, it is a land just like what we've heard. It's wonderful. They even brought back a sample of the fruit that it provided. Look at what it provides, and yet there are giants there. The people are numerous, and we can't take it. God said, because of your unbelief, your carcasses will die in this wilderness. And strewn over the wilderness of sin for the next 38 years was going to be the carcasses of all of those 20 years of age and upward who could have had belief in God, but who didn't. That's what this verse is telling us. They could have entered, but they didn't believe. 
They didn't have conviction. They didn't have faith. And therefore, verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest. Do you hear the beauty of that? We which believe do enter into rest. He isn't talking about the children of Israel. He's talking about us who believe. We are going to enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. Let's develop at least that verse in some more detail. If you're reading in the King James translation, again it says, Jesus. The literal reference is to Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, if Joshua had given to the children of Israel the ultimate and final rest, this verse says, then would there not have been afterward a later promise that that rest would be coming. But that's the very thing the Old Testament presents. After the days of Joshua, there was other prophecies that stated again about the rest. Therefore, Joshua could not have provided them with that final rest. And so in verse number 9 it reads, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. That's you and me. Therefore, there remains for us a rest. We're journeying toward a promised land just like the children of Israel did. Joshua didn't give them the ultimate and final rest, but you and I are still looking for it. We've just read verse number 9, and it goes on to say in verse 10, For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Don't you look forward to an occasion when all the efforts and the work of this old world can be laid aside. There's so much work to do. Every day seemingly is filled with activities, some of those directly related to the service of the Master, others related to living upon this planet. Don't you look for a place when a rest can finally take place. I'm reminded of Revelation 14, 13. What about you? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. To look for that Sabbath rest, the rest referred to here, just as surely as we've noted the parallel in the lesson tonight so far, the only thing remaining really is this. If the children of Israel, to enter their rest, had to cross the Jordan River, and there remains a rest for you and I, we too must cross a Jordan River in order to enter this rest. And all of those songs that we mentioned earlier have made reference to Jordan's stormy banks 
and the crossing of the Jordan. And you and I now know what it must be. That which you and I shall cross as we motivate toward that land, of course, we call it death. The Jordan River of death. Remember, God made a peaceful way for the children of Israel to cross their Jordan River, and He has promised to make a peaceful way for you and I to cross the Jordan River of death as well. It's called being right with God. We can approach death in calmness. The seas are easy and untroubled if you're a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, there's no peace to be found here. Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21 put it like this. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The waters cast up mire and dirt. Can you imagine how troubled those seas of the Jordan River and death appear to the person not ready? The person unprepared to meet his or her Maker the person unready to depart this life and to stand in judgment when that time comes. But God has made the passage of the Jordan something that can be so peaceful, so smooth, so uneventful in the sense that everything is ready. As you and I close that slide, how frequently do we encounter verses such as these? I would turn to your attention, John 14, verses 1 to 3. How well known it is. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Notice again, He's going to come, and He is the one that will make the passage easy. We just need to make sure that we're in Him, that we're faithful to Him, because He will ensure that the passage of this Jordan to which we've referred is peaceful and easy. In 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul described the resurrection chapter in the Bible, he pointed out these rather well-known words. May I direct your attention to how powerfully it is stated. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no sting if we're a Christian. And yet those who are not, death must be so fearful because they have not the hope of what's beyond that you and I have. Just like the children of Israel had a land of rest just across the Jordan, think of the peacefulness that awaits for us. In that place called Abraham's bosom, Luke 16. That place the Lord called paradise. Gary read it this morning in Luke 23:43. Paradise? How much better could it get? But yet, we appreciate as we come to this part of the lesson at least, there's a tremendous difference. Just like that peaceful crossing is promised to the faithful ones. I mentioned earlier in Isaiah 57, there's no peace to the wicked. In some ways, it's even more frightfully presented than that in 2 Thessalonians 1. To you who are troubled, rest with us. 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And what a contrast that is to the way Paul felt. Here was a man himself who was very near to death as he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. And yet in chapter 4 he could say, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord has promised to me, but not to me only, but to all of them also that love is appearing. What hope, what conviction, what true dedication is found in that. It allowed him a buoyed approach to approach death in such a way that he could look forward to a peaceful crossing of that Jordan River. On that slide, why don't we close it and ask ourselves these pertinent questions. The children of Israel, the faithful ones, were able to enjoy a peaceful crossing. We can enjoy a peaceful crossing as well. Are you ready? Are you ready? I can't answer for you and you can't answer for me. But the question is very pertinent. Are you and I ready for a peaceful crossing of this figurative Jordan River called death? And as we close our lesson, we're going to use that to highlight this. Though Jordan's stormy banks may be there rolling ferociously and vehemently for those unready, the Master has calmed those seas. In the book of Revelation, the calmness of those seas is highlighted in such dramatic ways, in ways that you and I can now appreciate or highlight in some of these songs we so frequently sing. This evening, if your conscience is troubled, if the seas are stormy, if the Jordan River is a rather frightful thing for you, it need not be. You need to come to the Master and you need to come tonight. Don't delay. Do not wait. A ferocious crossing of the Jordan is not a pleasant thing. If tonight we could be of help to anybody, perhaps sin in your life, though once you were a faithful Christian, the Lord can take care of it and He's promised He will if you'll let Him. The decision rests with you. Repent of those sins, confess them, and invite us to pray on your behalf, and we will be honored to do it. If there would be any need for which perhaps you've never become a Christian, don't you realize the danger you're in? The crossing of a Jordan while unprepared is more frightful than perhaps one can imagine. You need to repent of your sins after you believe in the Master, Confess His name and be baptized. Everything is ready. We could take care of this in a matter of minutes. And you could leave this place saved. Not because any man says you are, but because Jesus says you are. If we could be of any help to anybody tonight, why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing.